Um, I have the honor of presenting Dr. Beaton today. Um, Dr. Loud is still at conferences somewhere in the country right now. Um, but uh, a couple of things before we get started. Um, first, the code for today is HKZW for your phone. Um, the second thing is a little piece of good news, as Keith often does. I just wanted to let people know Susie is not in the room today, but for those of you who know Susie Whitcomb, Bridget's nodding right now, um, Susie has just won from Nursing Leadership the Dee Sheets and Bridget Mudge Patient and Family Center Care Nursing Award. And this award goes in honor of Dee Dee, who was a uh, champion of Chad, worked on the Chad Family Advisory Board, and Bridget, who has done, I don't know, everything for Chad over her career, um, uh, for unwavering commitment to partnering with patients and families and patient and family-centeredness in all that they do. So when you guys see Susie up on 6L, please give her a big congratulations. Bridget, do you know when the award is actually going to be presented? It was last night. Okay. Great, thank you. Um, coming up over Grand Rounds um, next week, and we're going to have our last in our series of neurology mini fellowships. On the 24th, Dr. Stephanie White is going to be presenting Grand Rounds on true colors of reflection on race and its implication for our patients, learners, and institutions. So that should be a really good one. And then we head off with two more of our residents. Jeff Schreiner is going to, uh, on Coincidentally, World No Tobacco Day 2017, talk about tobacco cessation in the pediatric population. And then Dr. Mallory Lestumbo would be finishing up our Grand Round series this year with a talk on contraception in adolescence. So we're pretty excited. Amy Beaton is our fifth out of seven presenting right now, and I have the honor of presenting her today. She graduated in 2008 from the University of Maine with a degree in biology. Took a little bit of time off. I don't know what she did. But 2000, things. and then things, <laughs> and then went uh, and graduated from the University of New England with a DO in 2014. She has joined us, and she's been an invaluable member of our team here. Um, as most of you know, she will be joining us as chief resident next year. And during her time here, she's yeah, cheers. <laughs> she has really stood out as a leader amongst her peers. She's been involved in um, the Haven's Healthy Fluoride Varnish Project. She has written a paper on substance misuse in adolescence, and we look forward to continuing to work with her over the next year. Today, she's going to talk about challenges in rural pediatric primary care. All right, welcome and thank you all for coming to Grand Rounds this morning. Today, I'll be discussing challenges and solutions in rural pediatric primary care. The objectives for my talk today are to review the history of rural healthcare, to understand the definition of rural, to examine health statistics of rural children, and to discuss important challenges in rural pediatric primary care and explore solutions to some of these challenges. As we go through this talk, this is how we're going to address these objectives. First, I'll tell you a little bit about my story growing up in a rural area. Then we'll briefly review the history of rural health and some of the health statistics of rural children. And then we'll talk about challenges from transportation to emergency medical services for rural children, as well as solutions to some of these challenges from telehealth to increased simulation. My only disclosure is that I grew up in rural northern Maine and have a personal interest in rural pediatric primary care. I'm going to start by telling you a little, about my, a little bit about my story growing up in rural Maine because I think it helps frame my interests in pediatric primary care. I grew up in Holton, Maine, which is evidenced by the yellow star on the map. It's a town with a population of about 6,000 people on the border of the U.S. and Canada. It's known for its agriculture and farming, especially potatoes, and there's also a small Amish community that lives about 10 miles from the town. In terms of pediatric care, there's a small community hospital, which rarely admits pediatric patients. There's a pediatric primary care office within the hospital. And the hospital itself is located about 120 miles, or one and a half to two hours, away from any pediatric inpatient or critical care or subspecialists. Now I'll give you a brief history lesson about rural health care. The difficulties of meeting the medical and psychological needs of individuals living in rural areas have long been recognized. Let's see for one second. Sorry. I'm trying to find my mouse here. 
On the screen? Whoop. I'm not on the screen for some reason. Kathy, do you know? Yeah. I think I'm in presenter view. Yeah. <laughs> Because yeah. it was, okay, hang on. Sorry, guys, one second. Minor difficulty okay, here. There we go. There we go. Okay, we're good. Yeah. All right. In pre-colonial days, no, it's not. Okay, one more time. We'll get this. We will get this. Yep. This is to prepare you for next year. I'm, yeah, I did. You're going to have to become as Texas. There we go. All right. But you've lost your mouse again. So. Now I've lost it. Slide it that way. You're just going to have to look on the... I don't think I can... She can't see her presenter. Notes. See my... Yeah. Okay. Okay. I think I'm good, but it's going to do that thing. Okay. We're going to live with it. Yep. Okay. All right. In pre-colonial days, Native healers attempted to meet the needs of rural populations. And when the colonists arrived from England, the first formally trained physicians arrived in America as well. In 1910, the Flexner Report was released, which su suggested revamping medical education to a formalized four-year curriculum. Less than 20 years after this report was published, Publications in the literature started to appear discussing the lack of physicians in rural areas. This was an unintended consequence of the Flexner Report. Recognizing this problem in the 1960s and 1970s, the federal government established area health education centers to serve the needs of rural individuals. And although, although the Office of Rural Health Policy wasn't formally established until 1987, it was seen as the final step moving forward in improving the health of rural Americans. So what does rural mean? According to the US Census Bureau, rural is defined as any population, housing, or territory not in an urban area. <laughs> 60 million people, or 19% of the population in the United States, lives in a rural area. 65% of the population, the rural population in the US, lives east of the Mississippi River. And Maine and Vermont had the highest proportion of the population living in rural areas. Just so that we're on the same page, this is rural America in the green. <laughs> this is a quote that really resonated with me that I thought was very appropriate for this talk. Just mention the word rural to most people raised in metropolitan areas. They wistfully will imagine a setting of green meadows, pure air, contented cows resting in the shade, a lot less people, and the all-important weather-beaten barn in the distance. Unfortunately, these images belie the reality that exists in many rural communities. Poverty, growing incidence of drugs and violence, an inadequate supply of medical and dental providers, a limited health insurance, and a greater prevalence of children with special health care needs than in urban areas. The information I'm about to present in this section is taken from the National Survey of Children's Health. As you can see on the map, Children are classified according to their residence in an urban area, a large rural area, or a small rural area. This map shows how these three types of areas are distributed across the US. Urban areas include metropolitan areas and surrounding suburban towns, and they're represented by dark green on the map. Large rural areas include large towns that have a population of 10,000 to 50,000 people, and they're represented by the medium shade of green on the map. And small rural areas include small towns and isolated rural areas that have a population of 2,500 to 10,000 people, and they're represented by the lightest shade of green on the map. There are approximately 72 million children in the United States. And you can see, looking at the pie chart, that 60 million of these children live in urban areas, while 6 million live in large rural areas, and 6 million live in small rural areas. This means that nearly one in five children in the United States lives in a rural area. These 12 million children are spread over a very large geographic range. Overall, the survey found more similarities than differences with regard to the health of children in urban and rural areas. 
However, there are key differences that could have significant impacts on rural children, the health and well-being of rural children. Some risks relate to their demographic characteristics, while others relate to their physical environment, and others relate to the communities and families in which they grow and develop. For example, children in rural areas are more likely than urban children to be poor. In the dark green area on the map, you can see that approximately 26% of children in both small and large rural areas had household incomes less than 100% of the federal poverty level. This was compared to 21% of urban children. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. You'll be able to see the top. No worries. Um, both males and females in large and small rural areas compared to urban areas are more likely to be overweight or obese. And children in rural areas are also more likely to live in a household with someone who smokes. One-third or 33% of children in large and small rural areas live with a smoker compared to 22% of children from urban areas. Hey, Rick. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what's up. What's going on? Uh, my mouse disappears if I try to... <laughs> I complain, but you're from the state of Maine, so you got to be a good person. <laughs> We're bonding. We've already bonded. <laughs> I'm still further north than you are, though. <laughs> exactly. Oh, it's there. My mouse is there now. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Yay! <laughs> All right. Uh, additionally, children in rural areas are also more likely to have greater than one moderate or severe health, chronic health condition. They're more likely to have two or more adverse childhood experiences. They're more likely to have repeated a grade in school and to watch greater than one hour of screen time per day. They're less likely to have participated in an organized activity outside of school in the past year, to have parents in good health, to have ever been breastfed, and to have attended a preventive medical or dental visit in the past year. There are a few protective factors that are actually more common among rural children. Children in rural areas are more likely to have shared a meal with their family every day in the past week, and they're more likely to report that they feel safe in their neighborhood. Another protective factor can be strong community support. Recently, I was at a rural pediatric primary care office. A mother came in with her two-week-old ex-preemie, who was just discharged from the NICU, and her two-year-old son. She'd been living with her mother, but had recently become homeless the prior night when her mother kicked her out for trying to educate her about safe sleep practices. The mother was in tears in the office. She didn't have diapers, wipes, clothes, or other basic supplies for the baby. She only had the clothes that she was discharged from the hospital with for him. Immediately, the office staff reached out to some of the local resources for housing, food, and shelter, clothing, um, and also sent out information that there was a family in need in the community to the local hospital and office staff. By the afternoon before the clinic closed, there were bags of diapers, wipes, clothing, gift cards, and money for this family. So this is a true example of how strong community support can be in rural areas. <coughs> now that we've highlighted some of the health statistics of children living in rural areas, let's discuss some of the challenges that put these children at even greater risk for poor health outcomes. We'll be discussing challenges from the perspective of the child, the family, and the pediatrician. In a non-scientific survey of rural pediatricians in our area, these words were rep representative of their responses regarding challenges in rural pediatric primary care. As you can see, transportation was the biggest challenge reported. Some of the other challenges included access to subspecialty care, and lack of incidents of mental illness and lack of available services, communication, compliance, isolation, social stressors, alcohol and drug use, and emergency care. Some of these challenges are not directly related to living in a rural area, but rather as a consequence of poverty, which, as we discussed, is more prevalent in rural areas. Haley did a great job in her Grand Rounds recently highlighting issues surrounding poverty, so we'll talk very little about that today. The first challenge we'll discuss is transportation. There are key differences and barriers to transportation between rural and urban areas. Access to public transportation in rural areas is limited by transit options, cost of transit, and distance per to providers. We're very fortunate to at least have transit options in this area. 
Not all rural areas are so lucky. Many have no transit options, or if they do, they can be very expensive for families because of the long distances that they have to travel. Existing transportation services through churches and Medicaid systems aren't always responsive to the individualized needs and schedules of families. This is the DHMC travel time map. It shows the travel time by car from various areas and hospitals in New Hampshire and Vermont to DHMC. This map is hanging in our resident workroom in our clinic, thanks to Sue Tansky, and is a great resource to use so that we can understand how far families have to travel in order to make their continuity clinic appointments or for hospitalizations. I think that it gives us all some perspective. For instance, a patient coming from Rutland Memorial Hospital, which is marked by the yellow star, and transferred to DHMC, marked by the black star, or if they're coming for a subspecialist appointment to DHMC, it takes them about, or it's approximately 50 miles from Rutland to DHMC, but it takes about 60 to 80 minutes by car. That is if families even have a car and the weather is good. One rural pediatrician recently told me that he saw a child who was new to his practice. The child had been limping around with a large painful bony mass on her leg without a diagnosis for weeks. Her prior PCP tried to send her for imaging and an ortho consult, but the family couldn't get to the appointment because their car wasn't working. Unfortunately, this is not an uncommon situation for children living in rural areas. Ultimately, transportation barriers can lead to worse health outcomes for children living in rural areas. The next challenge we'll discuss are the difficulties accessing pediatric subspecialty care for children in rural areas. Children with special health care needs and those who require subspecialty care are two vulnerable populations living in rural areas. These populations are often one and the same. There's a great study by Pletcher and colleagues. The subspecialty experiences of PCPs from rural areas were compared with PCPs from non-rural areas. And the authors found that only 54% of rural PCPs reported satisfaction with subspecialty care compared to 73% of non-rural PCPs. PCPs were also asked to rate their experiences with waiting times to see subspecialists and the number of subspecialists who care for children in their area. 68% of rural PCPs were dissatisfied with waiting times to see subspecialists compared to 49% of non-rural PCPs. And additionally, approximately 65% of rural PCPs rated the number of subspecialists in their area as poor or fair compared to 19% of non-rural PCPs. Although primary care pediatricians in rural areas are more likely to report dissatisfaction with long wait times than non-rural PCPs, it's apparent to me that the real issue to access to subspecialty care is a lack of available subspecialists in rural areas. Overall, the top five barriers to accessing pediatric subspecialty care that were likely to be reported by rural pediatricians in this study were length of travel time to the subspecialist's office, long waiting times for appointments, lack of appropriate pedi pediatric subspecialists, subspecialists not participating in certain health care plans, and subspecialists not accepting uninsured patients. These perceived barriers to subspecialty care may affect PCP referral patterns. PCPs may decide to refer their patients to adult trained specialists or manage their patients without subspecialty consultation. And this practice can adversely affect the quality of care received by these children. In the beginning of this section, we discussed that children with special health care needs are a vulnerable population living in rural areas. Almost 610,000 rural families are raising a child with a disability. These children will rely on a complex and fragmented system of care to meet their needs, which may be worse in rural areas because of inadequacies of the rural health delivery system. Children with moderate to severe health problems are actually more likely to live in rural areas. It is not clear why, but I've hypothesized that it could relate to lack of adequate prenatal testing and um, prenatal care and diagnostic testing for rural mothers who are more likely to be poor or have transportation barriers, which could result in children with more, more severe disabilities. Also, it could be related to cheaper housing options or families that are from rural areas could decide to stay there because of strong family and community supports. However, children with special health care needs living in rural areas may not have appropriate referral, diagnostic, nursing, and home health services available to them, which can lead to worse health outcomes. I'm going to read a quote to you from a parent of a child with special health care needs that demonstrates some of the challenges of caring for these children in rural areas. 
We have chosen a general practitioner, and he actually specializes in geriatrics. We don't have access to a pediatrician. We'd have to drive an hour to get to one, and then even if we found one, he might not take the medical card anyway. When we go to his PCP, it takes about 30 minutes. When we have to go to a specialist at Children's Hospital, that's an hour. And when we have to see another specialist about his feeding disorder at another children's hospital, that takes an hour and 45 minutes. You're looking at driving between 60 and 120 miles one way, depending on who he needs to see, and it's exhausting, just exhausting. Once again, you can see that long travel times, as well as the exhaustion faced by parents in seeking resources and providing care for their children are barriers to care. In a study by Skinner and colleagues, the National Survey of Children with Special Health Care Needs was used to examine the rural-urban differences in reasons why these children had more unmet needs and found that rural families experience more system-level problems in accessing care, struggle more due to lower incomes, spend more time obtaining and providing care for their children, and provide more care at home for their children. Families of rural children do provide more care at home, and this clearly places an additional barrier on rural families. It's possible that cultural differences may cause rural families to re prefer providing care at home when they're able to. Another challenge for children, families, and pediatricians is the increased incidence of mental health issues and the lack of available resources to meet those needs in rural areas. As we know, psychosocial concerns are common in pediatric primary care but they may be even more prevalent in rural areas given the combination of health disparities and service barriers. Rural children engage in more unhealthy behaviors such, a more, such as a more sedentary lifestyle and poorer nutrition. There's a strong body of literature that has shown that rural children have poorer access to mental health services with provider shortages identified as the most obvious barrier. Curtis and colleagues carried out a study to look at rural adolescent health and they found that rural adolescents reported having sexual intercourse at a younger age than their national peers. 16% of rural adolescents reported having sex at 14 years old versus 11% of adolescents nationally, according to data from the National Youth Risk Behavior Survey. They found that 7% of rural adolescents were current cigarette smokers, with a mean age of smoking initiation of 12 years old. This was higher than the national rate of current smokers among adolescents, which was 3%. Additionally, a study out of Ohio State University demonstrated that the suicide rate among male rural adolescents was twice that of male urban adolescents. These results are consistent with findings from previous studies of rural adolescent health, indicating significant risk factors and concerns among rural youth. And there are studies that have addressed the unique characteristics of rural areas that influence the accessibility of services for families who have children with serious emotional issues. Pullman and colleagues conducted one such study. They found that barriers to accessing mental health care that were exacerbated by living in a rural area included isolation, lack of available services, impaired geographic accessibility, and stigma, and concerns for confidentiality in, in small communities. This is a quote that I'll read to you from a parent in the study, illustrating the stigma around mental health in rural communities. I feel like it makes people question whether I'm a bad parent, which, you know, makes me sad because this is a very small town. I don't want to be looked at in those eyes when I'm just trying to do the best for my son. But that's the least of everything. My humiliation is the least of anything. On a different note, now we'll discuss the challenges of providing emergency medical services for children living in rural areas. The incidence of fatal injuries is 44% higher among rural children than urban children. And the, in, the risk of fatality increases with increasing rurality. Children in rural areas have unique medical and surgical needs because of occupational and lifestyle exposures. Factors that contribute to increased mortality and injuries among rural children our first motor vehicle crashes. As we know, rural roadways don't always have crash reduction features and they often have higher speed limits. And other types of crashes, including those with all-terrain vehicles and snowmobiles are more common in rural areas. And rural residents are actually less likely than urban residents to wear seat belts or to use child safety seats. 
Second, unintentional firearm injury rates are higher among rural populations, perhaps driven by higher proportions of gun ownership. Third, farm animals, farm animals and machinery pose hazards for rural children. And fire death rates are higher in rural areas because of older homes and the use of risky heating methods. The isolation of rural homes can also cause longer response times on the part of fire and EMS personnel. And finally, drowning and electrocutions are two times more common among rural residents than urban residents. This decreased access to medical care increases the morbidity and mortality of rural children. Some vital access issues include an increased risk of disability and death because of long transport times, the lack of pediatric skills of pre-hospital care professionals in rural areas, and the lack of pediatric expertise at the receiving hospital. Any inadequacy of EMS education and intervention may be even more detrimental in a rural setting. Now we'll discuss what happens when these children get admitted to a tertiary care facility like DHMC. As we know, children's hospitals are almost exclusively located in non-rural areas. Pelson colleagues conducted a study that compared patient characteristics and hospital utilization between rural and non-rural children. The authors found that rural children account for one in eight admissions to U.S. children's hospitals. And when hospitalized, rural children cost more and are readmitted more often, have a higher prevalence of a chronic condition and need for technology assistance, and are more often discharged to low-income and medically underserved areas. This study hypothesizes that more readmissions in rural patients could imply that hospital providers and local PCPs may not have as much of a close working relationship, which can make it difficult to decide when to discharge a child and how to keep them healthy and safe after discharge. More readmissions in rural patients might also represent impediments in the timeliness of care after discharge due to limited home and community-based resources available for rural children. And rural children may also experience difficulties adhering to a discharge plan, especially one that involves co-payments for medications, equipment, and follow-up visits. At DHMC, we tend to be more tertiary care-oriented, but how does the pediatric care delivered at a tertiary care center compare to that delivered at a local community hospital? Lorch and colleagues conducted a study to look at the differences in care provided for common pediatric conditions at rural versus non-rural hospitals. And the authors concluded that rural hospitals deliver similar care for many common pediatric conditions. Many childhood hospitalizations are for treatment of common conditions that can be managed at least initially at the local level. And rural hospitals and pediatricians can help to prioritize children to the appropriate level of care. A final study examining some of the challenges of hospitalizations for rural children and families was conducted by Flynn and colleagues. Their study involved newborns with special health care needs that were born in a rural hospital, but then were transferred to a tertiary care NICU right after birth. The authors demonstrated that increased distance from the hospital led to fewer visits by parents while their child was hospitalized. This seems intuitive, but I think sometimes we have moments when we're quick to judge parents when they do not stay in the hospital with their children and have to return to home, or they don't visit on a daily basis in the NICU. I think it's important to remind ourselves that there may be many reasons for this and a lot of stressors for these families that we're unaware of. And the final challenge that we'll discuss is the difficulty recruiting pediatricians to practice in rural areas. There's significant geographic maldistribution of pediatric primary care in the United States. This results in differences in access to care and is at least par partly to blame for differences in health outcomes between rural and non-rural children. The areas in dark red on the map demonstrate an area where there's no pediatrician available. As you can see, there are numerous areas in the U.S. where a child does not have access to a pediatrician at all, which is a huge problem. Now, as you can see from the table, family physicians tend to practice in rural areas more so than any other type of physician, including pediatricians. Family physicians made up 23% of physicians who were practicing in a rural area in 2005, whereas only 9% of pediatricians were practicing in a rural area at that time. And this trend still holds true. One of the challenges in recruitment to rural areas is gender. 73% of recent pediatric graduates are women, and women are less likely than men to practice in rural areas. 
So this trend creates a significant problem in increasing the pediatric, pediatrician workforce in rural areas. From the literature, there also seem to be four additional factors at play contributing to the difficulty in recruiting pediatricians to rural areas, including type of practice, type of training, lifestyle factors, and level of debt. One rural pediatrician wrote a very direct paper quite some time ago regarding some of the challenges of rural practice and why it's so difficult to recruit pediatricians to practice in rural areas. I think many of these factors still hold true, and I'll be referring to this paper throughout this section of the talk. When it comes to the type of rural practice, there's a variety of practice models. Dr. Brofman reported that in his practice, he covered the outpatient office, the inpatient ward, the ED, and the nursery. He often had to respond to emergencies at the hospital with a physical presence, which felt like a burden. The need to act as an intern for procedures and hospitalized patients was seen as disruptive to the flow of patients in the outpatient office. And the long distance to a large children's hospital led to having to treat sicker and more complicated patients. And finally, reliance on rural pediatricians by hospital management for participation in day-to-day -day operations of the hospital was difficult. These are some of the practice characteristics that may deter pediatricians from practicing in a rural area. In terms of the training of physicians practicing in rural areas, there's an increasing trend for international medical graduates and DOs to practice in rural areas. This could be because the mission statements in the majority of osteopathic medical schools state plainly that their purpose is the production of primary care physicians, and there's a special focus on providing care to underserved populations. From the chart above, you are over there, <laughs> above, uh, the MD and DO granting medical schools with the highest percentage of graduates practicing in rural areas in 2005 are there. You can see that the medical schools that produce the highest percentage of rural physicians place between 20 and 41% of their graduates in rural areas. And my medical school is actually one of these. The successful recruitment of young pediatricians is also inhibited by several parts of a rural lifestyle, including professional and geographic isolation, loss of personal privacy in a small community, limited social and cultural activities, limited employment opportunities for spouses, lower quality educational systems with fewer educational choices, and high levels of stress. Another barrier to recruiting pediatricians to rural areas is the increasing levels of debt among current graduates, which we'll talk more about in a minute. Now we'll discuss solutions that have been developed to meet the challenges of rural pediatric primary care. This is my guy here. The first, the first solution to the challenges of rural pediatric primary care is increasing federal funding and programs aimed at addressing these important issues. Former President Obama stated, a child's course in life should be determined not by the zip code she's born in, but by the strength of her work ethic and the scope of her dreams. Recognizing that every child, no matter where she's born, should have an opportunity to succeed, the White House Rural Council launched Rural Impact in April 2005, which is an effort to address the challenge of rural child poverty by bringing together federal agencies and public and private resources. This program is focused on child poverty. However, once again, as we know, poverty is more prevalent in rural areas and is correlated with worse health outcomes. When I was looking up information on this program, all of the websites were still in place, so I hope this program <laughs> continues to move forward. The second solution we'll discuss are the advancements in the patient and family-centered medical home that have developed over the past several decades. Approximately 46% of all children are reported to have a medical home, and the percentages are evenly split between rural and urban children. A medical home should be accessible, continuous, comprehensive, family-centered, coordinated, and compassionate. While a medical home is important for children living in both rural and urban areas, it's important for different reasons. In rural areas, the medical home really makes sure that children are not falling through the cracks. Care coordination is a vital component of the medical home for rural children. And when looking at the impact of a medical home on children with special health care needs, available evidence suggests that a medical home improves outcomes for children with special health care needs and their families in rural areas. Farmer and colleagues conducted a medical home project for children with special health care needs from both rural and urban areas. There was a care team that consisted of the PCP and office staff, the nurse practitioner, the family and child, and a parent consultant. 
A nurse practitioner went out into rural communities and provided services to children and families, including a home visit and an individualized health plan. Families reported improvements in care coordination, better access to mental health services, improvement in their family needs in school attendance for their child, and a decreased number of PCP and specialty visits for their children. By traveling to rural communities and tailoring their intervention for each family, the MP was able to link children to needed resources and supports, regardless of location. The authors demonstrated that PCPs can use a team approach to improve comprehensive and coordinated care for children with special health care needs and their families, even in rural areas. This project was supported by a grant. There may be several limitations for PCPs to actually carry out this model in real practice, but I think it does give hope and ideas for the future about how to creatively provide a comprehensive medical home to children with special health care needs in rural areas. And at this point, I want to highlight the practice of a rural pediatrician in our area who provides a very comprehensive medical home. Dr. Brian Beals has been practicing in Berlin, New Hampshire for over 20 years. He knows that every child deserves a medical home. And in my opinion, he goes above and beyond to make this happen. For instance, for his oncology patients, he has the ability to give some types of chemotherapy, he can access and deaccess ports, and he can give blood or platelet transfusions. For his type 1 diabetics, he feels comfortable starting an insulin drip. He does a lot of child psychiatry, which he's received extra training on, and is also comfortable performing child abuse examinations. Additionally, if a child in his practice has been in the ED or has recently been hospitalized, the care coordinators call them within one day to check in. And in terms of neonatal care, he teaches NRP and runs mock codes at the local hospital often. Dr. Beals has really taken it upon himself to learn and become comfortable with all the aspects of providing a comprehensive medical home for children in a very rural area, which is truly exceptional. This is just one example, but many rural pediatricians provide an exceptional medical home for the children that they serve, which can really make a difference in their health and well-being. Now we'll discuss how we can increase communication and collaboration between tertiary care centers and rural providers even more. I'm going to talk about three ways we're currently doing this, including telehealth, simulation, and team collaboration. First, telehealth is a solution to some of the challenges faced by children, families, and pediatricians in rural areas. This slide is inspired by Steve Chapman, who reminded me that pediatricians have been utilizing telehealth for a long time. This quote and picture are from the cover of the February 1925 issue of Science and Invention magazine, entitled A Doctor's Diagnosis by Radio. The teledactylus featured in the picture is a future instrument by which the doctor of the future will be able to feel his patient, as it were, at a distance. The doctor manipulates his controls, which are then manipulated at the patient's room in exactly the same manner. The doctor sees what is going on in the patient's room by means of a television screen. The AAP Committee on Pediatric Workforce reports that when used appropriately, telemedicine can be used to connect patients to needed yet otherwise inaccessible high-quality care. There are benefits of telehealth to the child, family, and pediatrician. Telehealth eliminates geography as a barrier to access, which can minimize parents and caregivers missing work, children missing school, and can eliminate high travel costs. For pediatricians, it can be used for consultations, case discussions and conferences, multidisciplinary rounds, and CME and GME opportunities. Telehealth has offered solutions to difficulties with transportation and lack of access to subspecialty care and mental health services for children living in rural areas. It's an active area of research and advancement. Many providers at DHMC provide telehealth services to rural communities. For example, Dr. Donnelly in pediatric psychiatry has been providing telemental health services to children living in rural areas in New Hampshire and Vermont for over 10 years. Dr. Morse also provides telehealth services for neuropatients in Berlin, New Hampshire. Additionally, at DHMC, we offer e-consults and enhanced referrals for providers within the DHMC network, which is a type of telehealth service. However, we don't provide these services to rural general pediatricians, who are quite possibly the population that needs them the most. So I think that it's vital that we figure out how to change this. Another way to increase collaboration between tertiary care centers and rural providers is through simulation. Increased simulation for low-frequency, high-risk events for rural pediatricians is a solution to being more prepared for emergencies that may be encountered in rural practice. 
Regardless of the location, it's important to run simulations in the environment with the team who will actually experience these scenarios. We have the ability to perform remote simulation as well, in which a provider from a different facility like DHMC can use telemedicine or remote access to facilitate simulation in rural hospitals. But also, Dr. Carolyn O'Day goes out to rural community hospitals and does simulation scenarios for neonatal resuscitation. There's no set curriculum, but the team often takes critical events and does simulation around them, using, following the current NRP guidelines. Dr. O'Day refreshes providers on procedures such as low-lying emergent UVC placement and airway management. Additionally, DHMC's section of emergency medicine is also increasing simulation experience for rural providers. They've developed a curriculum with the goal of improving pre-hospital care of children in rural northern New England. One of the more unique offerings is the mobile simulation unit, which is designed to give pre-hospital providers an opportunity to work on simulation mannequins, obtain medical histories, perform physical exams, and practice interventions. Rural pediatricians could also take part in this if they desired to help increase their emergency medicine skills. And while we're on this topic of improving resuscitation and emergency skills for rural providers, I want to take a moment to touch specifically on office preparation for pediatric emergencies. The AAP has a policy statement on this topic, which is a great resource for all pediatricians, but especially rural pediatricians. There are recommended medications and equipment that should be kept in the offices of any provider that's more than 10 minutes away from the nearest EMS service. Additionally, rural pediatricians should run mock codes and simulations in their offices with staff to become more comfortable in these emergency situations. In summary, pediatricians can play valuable roles in ensuring access to high-quality and comprehensive emergency care for children in rural communities by participating in pediatric trainings, aiding in establishing pediatric protocols for local EMS, advocating for legislative initiatives, preparing to care for acutely ill children in the office, and providing patient and parent education regarding emergencies. Another way to increase communication between tertiary care centers and rural providers is by using team collaboration to take care of medically complex children. We have colleagues at DHMC who go out into rural communities to educate school nurses, daycare providers, families, EMS providers, and PCPs about the aspects of caring for children with a medical complexity. The TLC program nurse coordinator, Laura Cogswell, accompanies infants to dependent upon technology home the day of discharge from the NICU and makes certain that all home and community resources are in place for these families and then they develop emergency plans together. Dr. Hartman and Laura provide medical care and follow-up in these, these families' homes. This is just one example of how providers at tertiary care centers can do a great job going out into rural areas and ensuring that all members of the child's health care team are comfortable. This is a picture of a child who was recently discharged from the ICN who I had the pleasure of caring for, and he continues to be followed by the TLC program. Another wonderful example is Deb Gardner in the Pediatric Neurology Department, who goes to schools in rural communities and does diastat teaching. Pauline Kimball in the Pediatric GI Department goes out to area schools and teaches nurses how to give G-tube feeds and what to do if the G-tube falls out. And Amy Moynihan and Pauline both teach home care nurses these skills as well. There's many more examples that I'm forgetting, but those are a few. This team collaboration is truly wonderful and improves the quality of care for these children and their families. And finally, we'll talk about recruitment strategies. As we discussed, the 2013 AAP Workforce Policy Statement noted that the current supply of primary care pediatricians in rural areas is inadequate to meet the needs of these children. So how do we fix this? One recruitment strategy is to target debt relief. Cole and colleagues surveyed graduating pediatric residents from around the country to look at resident interest in debt relief programs in exchange for practicing in a rural area. And as you can see from the graph, the study suggested that if we increase debt relief for more residents, they would consider practicing in a rural area. There are some formal debt relief programs, including the National Health Service Corps Loan Repayment Program, Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, and the Indian Health Services Loan Repayment Program. These are more comprehensive programs. There are more state and local funding programs available as well. However, you have to work harder to find these. Another recruitment strategy is to increase training experience in rural medicine. 
Pediatricians planning to practice in a rural area should have the opportunity to experience rural medicine during their training. Experience in rural health helps residents become directly aware of medical costs, psychosocial concerns, and the current beliefs of their cultural beliefs of their patients. They can see firsthand the complexities of practice in a small rural town, and they can acquire the necessary skills to practice in a rural area. Rural residency tracks can help to provide this experience for students and residents. There are a few studies of family practice residencies in rural areas and with rural training tracks that have had success in increasing the number of graduates practicing in rural areas. For instance, family practice rural training tracks are placing graduates in rural settings at notably high rates, 76% overall and 88% among programs implemented in the past 10 years. Research suggests that residents who train in rural areas are more likely to practice in these communities. Additionally, trainees with a rural background are more likely to train in primary care and return to rural communities. A few examples of rural residency tracks are the West Virginia School of Medicine that has a pediatric rural health scholars track, the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, which has a pediatric advocacy and leadership track, and the University of Nebraska, which has a pediatric rural behavioral health track. Another program designed to encourage physicians to practice in rural areas is the WAMI program, which was created by the University of Washington as a means to increase the number of physicians practicing in rural areas. And additionally, at DHMC, I think that our residency does a great job at giving us experience to rural, in rural health care. Our community pediatrics rotation gives residents the option of going to practices in areas such as St. Jay's, Bradford, Claremont, and South Royalton in order to gain exposure to rural pediatric primary care. So as my residency career is coming to an end, I find myself wondering, what would it take for my peers to practice pediatrics in a rural area? I know one of my classmates, Heather, is going to be practicing in rural upstate New York, which is wonderful. Additionally, graduates of, their, of this residency program have gone to practice in St. Jay's, Bradford, and South Royalton, and even rural Maine in the past 10 years, which I think really says something for our program in terms of exposure for residents in rural care. I think we need to continue to think of innovative ways to incentivize and attract residents and students to practice in rural areas. So now that you're equipped with all this information, I challenge you to think about how we can improve the health outcomes of children living in rural areas every time you see one of these children and their families in your office. This applies whether you're a rural pediatrician or a subspecialist in a tertiary care center. We all have the ability to advocate for these children. So in summary, children in rural areas face increased risks for poor health outcomes and unmet medical needs. There are many challenges to obtaining and providing comprehensive care for children in rural areas. There are many solutions to these challenges that are currently in use and that hold promise for the future. And being a rural pediatrician is awesome and really hard work. This is my bibliography. That goes a lot for a long time. <laughs> Thanks to everyone that helped in some way with my grand rounds, especially Kathy Shubkin. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Amy. That was an incredible talk. I think it took us from big picture to very specific solutions that we have and should be proud of here at DHMC. And so with that, I will open up for questions. Jolene, you're um, pointing at something. What's that? More lights. More lights? Oh. I'm wondering if... Given the, the uh, low levels and the difficulty recruiting pediatricians, whether there's a room for associate providers, and that's we've seen that in a lot of places where you either can't afford or can't obtain enough positions to do the job, and associate providers are obviously so skilled. But I'm wondering if there's any room towards you know increasing the associate provider presence in rural areas. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, honestly, in the literature that I looked at, there wasn't anything that specifically talked about that, but I think that that sounds like a great idea. Um, I'm sure there is some literature out there discussing it, but just not that I came across. There, there are low recruitment programs for NPs similar to the ones for docs and um, awesome. PAs as well. Um, great, thanks. Some of the rural practices that you mentioned also employ NPs. Yeah. Um, staff by yep. for a long time. And I think Berlin, 
actually also shows a lot of work to increase access for dental care by using, what, what are they called? <laughs> dental hygienists? <laughs> hygienists. Dental hygienists, no, but they have a special name too. So. Yeah. All right, other questions? Dr. Casella. That's great, Amy. Um, Wondering the Annie Casey Foundation, you know, recurrently rates the health of the children in Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire as being among the best in the country. Mm -hmm. So, what are those features they're looking at that cause them to feel like overall the rural? <coughs> they are certainly one of the more rural groups. Yep. You know, what are what are the health things that are so much better? allow us to have those kinds of ratings. I don't really know the components. Yeah, the that's really interesting. The survey, the National Health, um, the uh, National Children's Health Survey um, that I took this data from, the last time it was done was in 2011 and 2012, and it was the third time the survey had been conducted. And basically, from the perspective of this survey, there was quite a bit of disparity, actually, um, even in just in rural America in general, um, in comparison to urban children. I don't know about the particular foundation that you're, like those statistics you're talking about, but really some of the characteristics between urban and rural children were sort of the same in the survey, which are, um, which are ones I didn't really go into that much. Um, but otherwise, there were quite a few differences. So I'm not really sure, and mostly it was highlighting that rural children have worse health outcomes because of these things. So I'm not I'm not exactly sure. I think our distance to, to care, even in a rural place, and you could make an argument that where you lives in Maine is a little bit different, but the distance <laughs> to care is different Yes, there's a lot of studies about like Montana, you know, places there with the, obviously that's a huge geographic area. They're way more isolated and those children are at greater risk of worse health outcomes. And there are differences Definitely. There. Yes. Trisha. Um, so like add on to that, I just, there's also just fewer children. Like I think more children live in Manchester or here and like are close to care. And yeah, there are kids scattered the rest, but I would say that those probably just aren't factoring into the survey as well. Yeah. But my other sort of comment is that I hope that as that we as a society progress, that women can sometimes be the primary um, breadwinner in the family, that this will change. Because I do feel like you're correct. Like it's mostly female pediatricians who mostly are tagging along with their husband wherever they go, who, you know, and that's changing. But I think that that's what drives people to where, you know, it's a city center versus in family practice. I think, I don't know, did you say statistics for family practice that it's more men or women? Um, no, no. I think it's a little more balanced. So that's why I would guess. But I just, I don't know. I was wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah. I'm actually not sure about that, to be honest. I wasn't looking. A lot of the literature does discuss family practice physicians, but I try to focus more on um, pediatricians for this talk, even though obviously um, family practice physicians see children as well, um, just to focus specifically on pediatricians. Dr. House, um, just another sort of interesting comment, just coming back from PAS. So we um, have, have had this sort of era in healthcare where we really focused on regionalization of specialty services. You and I talked a little bit about that yeah. as we're getting ready. And, and bringing kids to the tertiary care center to get a subset of care that can't be delivered in the community. You touched upon the fact that there are certain aspects of inpatient care that are really readily delivered within the yeah. community. And there's a lot of increasing evidence coming out about cost, suggesting that the cost of care provided locally is significantly less than that provided at a tertiary care center. Mm -hmm. We don't know exactly why that is yet, but there's something about the way that we're delivering care, even to inpatients with pretty standard inpatient conditions, yeah. that escalates costs at, at centers that are not in a rural community. So I think on both sides, from a system standpoint and from a sort of family access to care standpoint, it's worth thinking more now about yeah, there's a lot of papers about that. And one of the, the study that I mentioned, one of the outcomes in that study that they looked at was that there was actually um, the length of stay and odds of a prolonged stay in children treated in rural versus urban hospitals was actually, you know, there was uh, children were less likely to have a prolonged stay and um, shorter lengths of stay when they were treated in rural hospitals versus urban hospitals for the same conditions. And our bias would be to think that we're doing it the right way, right? I mean, it's important to know that right. we, we may not be. There may be something really valuable about the way that care is provided. Yeah. I don't believe 
Yeah. And so maybe they, in a community hospital, that's true. Well, I know you're down the block, so you can go home. Right. Kind of like yeah. Because the person discharging them might also be their pediatrician as well. As a family doc, I can't cite the data, but I can tell you that there is um, a similar increasing trend of women entering the specialty compared to men. Okay. Probably more balanced than kids, but it's it's um, it, it's uh, less disparity than say with general surgery. Okay. Um, I think that one of the issues about providing rural care is that um, family practice, unlike kids um, and medicine doesn't really have a plethora of subspecialty training offered in medical centers. We have a couple of certificates of advanced credentials, <clears throat> but by and large, people going into family medicine expect to do general care and are more oriented to a rural practice um, <clears throat> as a result. Additionally, <clears throat> a lot of rural locations, <clears throat> pardon me, I have that frog out. Um, are likely to recruit family docs from the point of view of efficiency of medical staffing. You know, if yes. you've got room for five clinicians and they can all cross cover each other, that's an easier staffing solution than having five clinicians, none of whom can cross cover each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw some of that in the literature too as well. Thank you. You were saying that there's a higher rate of children with disabilities in the rural area. Yeah. Is there any literature that kind of delineates what those are? They, you know, <laughs> no. Saying, but maybe they were just basically recessive genetic disorders? Or? Unfortunately not. I went back through after I found that and tried to like sc scrape the literature after Shalene or Julie or somebody posted a really great question to me during my practice run, and I could not find anywhere why that is. But that's why I hypothesize that maybe these women aren't getting adequate prenatal care or testing, and that maybe leads to more severe disabilities. I honestly don't know. I couldn't find it. Joel, and then Dr. Lynn. You didn't necessarily expressly frame your talk as, a, uh, as an ethical matter, but you might have. Can you think about that as you were developing your story? <laughs> <laughs> Not really, <laughs> but I can see your perspective um, that I potentially could do that. Um, do you want to tell me more about what you mean? <laughs> so, uh, so I, you know, this sort of uh, maps back to some degree to Dr. Sell's comment about, about the notion of ratings and metrics and how do we measure whether healthcare is going well or not going well. And to some extent, I think some of the issues you described show up in the context of individual ethics cases around the care of individual patients okay. that we don't necessarily measure. And so there's really good rural health ethics literature about uh, some of these unmet needs. So while these can be framed, you know, to, I think you frame them extremely articulately as an issue about disparities. By extension, those are ethical issues. And for individual providers, when you're thinking about burnout and sustainable care in rural areas, you're also asking this question, what's hard about doing rural practice mm -hmm. taking care of individual patients, taking care of patients with disabilities, chronic, uh, chronic and complex healthcare needs? And what happens when you send a child down to Boston who gets a ventricular assist device and they come back and you can't actually maintain them in your community? That's have a really good point. Right or have you not done the right thing? Mm -hmm. That's a really good you point. Thank you very much. Uh, what about the communities themselves, both the communities, civic leaders in the communities, hospital and healthcare facilities? What are they doing to attract healthcare providers to the communities? Are they providing any incentives or things that make their, the lives of these providers more livable? I think money is the big one. Um, to be honest, what I find most, what I found most often in the literature, I know um, 
people going to rural areas are often, you know, they have the, the programs and all of that, but that can be, it can be really difficult for people to take the time and energy and all those things to put into those programs and then to actually, you know, go to an area where they're, they're placed somewhere, they try to put you somewhere you want to be, but that's not necessarily where it's going to be, and go there. So I think that a lot of rural hospitals are incentivizing providers to come by giving them large sign-on bonuses and also high salaries. Um, I don't know what the actual comparison would be from like urban to rural, like the salary of a pediatrician there, but I think that it's becoming less of a disparity um, between the two and that really um, salary and sign-on bonuses are one of the big incentives that hospitals are using. Thank you, Amy. And as a graduate of the Whammy program in Washington, and I would have never considered practicing in rural Washington without my two months in Pocatello, Idaho. Um, I just really challenge all of us and faculty here to think about how we're encouraging and supporting our rural families and our uh, residents who are going out to practice in rural um, New England. So thank you very much for being here.